Hi there. Uh, thanks for braving the storm and coming to uh, today's Cato Forum on the Federal Budget Outlook. Um, we're delighted to have the Acting Director of the uh, Congressional Budget Office uh, here. But before I introduce uh, Don Marin, let me uh, plug three Cato books that uh, relate to the federal budget and can give you some uh, good budget-cutting ideas. Uh, I'm Chris Edwards, by the way, Director of Tax Policy uh, at Cato. Um, three books you should uh, look at in uh, regard to the federal budget, the Cato Handbook on Policy, which is, comes out every uh, two years, all kinds of uh, great ideas department by department to cut the budget. Uh, my Downsizing the Federal Government that came out in the fall and has uh, a long list of uh, very modest and balanced, uh, balanced proposed cuts to uh, shrink the government by 25%. And, uh, and Steve Slavinsky, uh, Cato's budget director, has a book coming out in August uh, with a bit of an odd tentative working title called Buck Wild, and he'll be talking uh, about uh, cutting the budget in that book as uh, well as, uh, as today. He'll be uh, giving some uh, reform suggestions. Um, Don Marin will uh, speak first, and uh, I'll go after that, and Steve will uh, wrap it up with ways to reform the federal Budget. Uh, Don Marin is the acting director of the Congressional Budget Office. He, uh, he began with CBO in October and became the acting director in December. Don was previously chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors. Prior to that, Don was executive director and chief economist at the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, and before that, uh, before Don came to Washington, he actually had real jobs in the private sector where he actually uh, added to the nation's uh, GDP. One of those uh, jobs, uh, uh, he was CFO for a medical software company in Austin, and he also has uh, years of experience working for a consulting firm. Um, we're delighted to have Don here today. Don's going to give us um, an, an overview of CBO's view on the uh, federal budget, and that will be followed with me looking at some of the numbers in the president's budget that was released last week, and we'll wrap up with Steve Slavinsky. Uh, then we'll do uh, some Q&A. Uh, with that, we can go to Don. Great. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, first thing first, I have a confession to make, uh, which is that uh, during part of my time in the private sector at uh, the startup software company where I was CFO, uh, where I went uh, in early 2000, uh, not the most uh, propitious time to go, uh, I would have to say that we probably subtracted from GDP rather than added. But, but we tried. Uh, so I'm here today to talk about uh, the CBO outlook. Uh, our outlook has been out there for several weeks now, so I'm sure that you've heard bits and pieces of it. And I've discovered uh, in my time doing this that one of the most important roles for me and for our team is to sort of help and make sure that everyone understands what our outlook is and what it isn't. And so let me just hit some of the high points, and then we'll hit some of the details. Uh, high points are that for 2006, our deficit projection uh, got a little bit wider, got a little bit worse. That's not surprising. A great deal of that has to do with Katrina, which obviously wasn't in our previous projections, which we released last August. Uh, you know, if you look sort of more broadly at the outlines of our projection, not much has changed since last August, and frankly, not much that has changed since a year ago. We haven't seen dramatic changes uh, in the federal budget posture as it's reflected in the projections that we produce. Uh, if you look at the economic assumptions that underlie our projections, we're basically seeing a strong economy this year, a solid economy next year, 3.6% uh, growth this year, 3.4% growth next year. Uh, there are some risks out there. Maybe we'll talk about them in the Q&A. But the basic story is one that economy seems to be doing well, seems to be solid. And then kind of a recurring theme for anyone who gets to be in my position is talking about the long-term situation. Uh, and the basic story there also has not changed. It's just that the long-term challenges we face from the uh, large mandatory spending programs are getting closer in time and are beginning to show up uh, within the 10-year budget windows that we use. So getting into some of the details, uh, if you look in our report, and I should hold it up, yours doesn't come with pink post-its on it, but it's a very nice report. I encourage you to get a copy. Uh, download and print from our website, cbo.gov. Uh, for 2006, the key numbers in the report are we're looking at a budget deficit of $337 billion for this year. Now, since we did that, uh, Congress has actually passed a law. They passed uh, the Reconciliation Spending Bill. And so think about that $337 billion number as now being about $332 billion, okay? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 2.6% of GDP. So a little higher in dollar terms than we had a year ago and about the same size uh, relative to the overall size of the economy. Now, as many of you know, there are some limitations on what CBO can build into our projections. 
right? We're not allowed to build in changes in future law. There are a few things in place that make it likely that our projection, even for this year, will be well too low. And in particular, there's likely to be additional spending for flood insurance, and there's likely to be additional spending for operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you take our estimates of just those two pieces, uh, they add in somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion. And so I would say overall our projection for 2006 budget deficit is somewhere in the neighborhood of $355 billion. Uh, you've heard that the administration is out there with a projection uh, from their budget uh, somewhere north of $400 billion, so $423 billion. And there are basically two reasons why our number and their number differs. Okay, the first is that their budget has policy recommendations, policy desires in it. Some of those will cost money in 2006, and so it's not surprising that their budget deficit will be higher than the one that's projected by CBO. And then in addition, there are a whole variety of assumptions that go into estimating both spending and revenue trends, uh, and they may have made different assumptions. Uh, CBO won't have an official sort of view on what's in the President's budget until sometime in March when we release our outlook, or release our analysis of the President's budget. So I can't really forecast how that breakdown is going to be, but as you compare the two numbers now, you should just think about there being those two differences. Some of it's estimation differences and some of it's going to be policy differences. Um, let me hop right away to my favorite chart over here on the left, my left, your right, uh, which is a graph of spending relative to GDP over time and a graph of revenues to GDP. Uh, outlays are in red, revenues are in blue. Uh, and if you see the dotted line sort of on most of the left-hand side of the graph, we have history, which tells a very interesting story about where we've been. And then on the right-hand side, you see what our projection is over the next essentially 11 years, this year plus the 10 years of the projection period. And I basically just want to walk through the different components of that so that you can be a, a a powerful and informed user of what our projection is. So first of all, just taking it at face value, right, you see in essence that relative to GDP, spending in our projection is going down. Tax revenues are coming up with particularly a large spike around 2011 uh, when the tax provisions expire, and that we go from being in a situation of significant budget deficits to a situation of small surpluses. Now let's just run through the pieces of this and see how we came up with these projections. Okay, by law, CBO has to do certain things in constructing our projections. First, on the discretionary spending side, we have to take what budget, budget authority has been allocated for this year, for 2006, and then we just assume that that happens in the future with inflation added. And so as a result, what you have is that discretionary spending by construction in the projection grows slower than the overall economy. Right, the overall economy grows at the rate of inflation plus the rate of real growth, uh, whereas discretionary spending in our construction is forced to grow at inflation. As a result, discretionary spending as a share of GDP is going down over time, and that's the main driver of why the red line appears to be going down. Now, if you look over recent history, you'll see the red line has been going up faster than GDP, and the fact that discretionary spending has been growing faster than the economy has been a key driver of that. On the mandatory spending side, what we're required to do is to take the programs as they exist today and essentially assume they continue in that form. You know, sort of mathematically, you almost treat them as a formula. They're a formula that takes the number of beneficiaries and certain measures of how much spending there is per beneficiary and then just runs that out through time. And so what our team does is try to forecast how many people are going to be eligible, what the costs will be, and then even if the programs are scheduled by law to expire at some time, we assume that they continue to exist and we run that out. Uh, as you know, several of the major mandatory spending programs have the feature that spending in them is, is by construction going to grow faster than the economy over time. And so what we actually have is that mandatory spending is growing faster than the economy in our projection. And what you have in the red line is essentially a race between by construction discretionary spending growing slower than the economy and mandatory spending, if you just extrapolate it out under current programs, growing faster. And you get a little bit of a U-shape in the out years and the later years of our projection. The mandatory piece is growing so fast and it's become such a large part of the overall budget that the red line starts going up. On the revenue side, the blue line, you know, clearly the most noticeable thing there uh, is the large jump up that happens in 2011 and a little bit in 2012. That's the expiration of many of the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. Uh, and you see that you get a significant jump up in the size of revenues relative to the overall size of the economy. I also want to emphasize that both before and after that jump, you also have an upward slope. Right? The nature of the tax system in this country is such that at this moment in time, uh, taxes grow faster than the overall economy. And so if Congress and the President just left the tax code alone for some period of time, 
taxes would grow more rapidly, and it's for three basic reasons. Okay? The first reason is real bracket creep. Given the progressive structure of our tax system, the fact that we have real growth in the economy means that people move into higher marginal tax rate brackets, and then that causes by itself tax revenues to rise faster than the economy. Uh, second, we have some portions of the income tax system, most notably the alternative minimum tax, the AMT, that are not fully indexed for inflation. And so as a result, you get some bracket creep just from inflation pushing people into higher marginal tax rates. Uh, and then third, we're also having, uh, as the demographic shifts happen, as we have more retirees in the economy, we have more people out there who have invested in 401ks and traditional IRAs who essentially have tax-deferred saving who over time are going to begin to withdraw that saving. Okay, and they're going to be paying taxes on that. And the combination of these three factors together causes the blue line, in essence, to slope up uh, over time. Tax revenues grow faster than the economy. And then, of course, we have the big jump uh, in 2011 as well. The key emphasis on all of these figures here is that this is not a forecast and that CBO has no pretensions of, of pretending that this is a forecast and that in your daily lives of using this, you should not use it as a forecast. It's intended as a benchmark, as a baseline against which Congress can evaluate proposed changes to tax policy and to spending policy. It's basically trying to define where zero is for a change. Right? And so if you change taxes or if you change uh, spending in certain ways, it'll show up as costing money or saving money relative to the baseline that's built up here. Okay? Because of the rules under which it's constructed, mandatory spending is assumed to continue forever as designed, discretionary grows with inflation, tax happens as written, and so things that expire actually expire, uh, it's probably not the greatest forecast of what will actually happen. Right? Forecast would have to include what happens legislatively, and we at CBO happily are not in the business of trying to predict what Congress will actually do. Let me step back, quickly talk about the economic outlook. I said CBO sees a solid economy this year, solid economy next year. That's a combination of several factors. Uh, primarily, and this is something that I think is consistent with what we see with private economic forecasters and also uh, with the administration's forecast, uh, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about business investment. Uh, business investment hasn't kept up with overall growth of the economy in recent years. There's essentially a backlog of projects that need to be done in order to have the productive capacity necessary to keep up with the demand that exists out there. And so we see business investment growing solidly for the next couple of years. Uh, we also see that on the consumer side, things continue to be relatively solid. Right? There's been growth in wealth. There's been growth in incomes. Those are helpful and support consumer spending. We do expect cooling on the housing side. And so, you know, when you hear people talking about the housing bubble and whether it will turn around, we have built into our economic forecast or economic projection that there will be cooling in the housing sector and that the amount of residential investment this year will be less than last year and similarly for 2007. Okay, so some degree of cooling built in, but nonetheless, the, the household sector continues to be strong. And then we also have built in some improvement, some strengthening in the international sector, that we expect exports to grow somewhat faster than imports, and all else equal, that will give some boost to growth over time. So basically a story in which the economy seems to be solid, seems to be doing its thing, seems to be uh, supporting higher tax revenues. Uh, I said, you know, there's some risks out there, uh, but basically seems solid. Now, as you get into the later years of our projections, an important thing to keep in mind are the demographic changes. The demographic changes are not just going to affect the spending side and possibly the tax side of, of the budget. They're also going to affect the overall size of the economy and, therefore, the revenues that come in from taxing uh, economic activity. And the basic story there is that as we get later into the 10-year forecast with the projection window, uh, what you have is that the growth of the labor force slows down. And it slows down in significant measure because of the changing demographics we have. As people age and retire, fewer people are going to be in the labor force. And so as a result, over time, the economy is going to grow more slowly. And so while we have growth rates somewhere near 3.5% this year and next year, slowing down into the round three, in the later years of our projection, we actually have growth rates that are 2.7, 2.6. And so we're going to have a situation where spending is going to continue to grow rapidly, but the economic activity meant to support that spending is actually going to be growing more slowly. Lots of uncertainties around this, right? These are point estimates. In order to provide a baseline that can be used for scoring revenue and spending proposals, people need specific numbers, and so we make point estimates about what spending and taxes are going to look like. Obviously, there's significant uncertainty around these. Okay, there's uncertainty about economic outcomes and about sort of the technical factors that drive these projections. Uh, in the report itself, we have a very nice fan chart, which I didn't, wasn't able to bring a copy of, but shows the range of uncertainty around these figures. I should just emphasize that as you get a few years out into our projections, the uncertainty could easily be a couple of percentage points of GDP in either direction. Okay? And so uncertainty is just fundamental to the business of making these projections. 
And then, as I hinted earlier, the other major uncertainty that will affect these projections is what uh, you guys and your bosses do. Uh, to the extent that policies change, these lines will move around. Okay, final point, moving over to the chart on the right. Uh, you can see in our projection the challenges that are coming from the major, the big three mandatory spending programs. Again, it's a little bit hidden in the red line because of what's happening with discretionary. But if you look over here, we have Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid over both history and over the 10-year forecast projection window. And what you see is that they're growing on aggregate substantially. Uh, for this year, we look at the big three programs taking up about 8.7% of GDP, so a little bit less than nine cents of every dollar that's generated in the economy. And by the end of the window, they're going to be almost 11%. And then, and I didn't bring this chart, but then if you look at our long-term forecasts, our long-term projections, which we released in December, these things basically blow up. Uh, you can actually see what's driving this, that if you look at the Social Security bar, which is at the bottom, that looks relatively flat, but you can begin to see that it's beginning to slope up in the later years of the projection. So you can begin to see the demographic change of more people collecting Social Security. That actually gets much steeper if you go out another decade or so. Medicare and Medicaid are widening much more rapidly, and of course the key thing there is that they're driven by two challenges. They're the demographic changes which are driving up Medicare spending and also Medicaid spending because of long-term care, but in addition there's very rapid growth of health care costs. Healthcare costs have been growing faster than the economy for 40 years, and our projections uh, are built on the assumption that that will continue at some level, maybe not that rapidly, but that healthcare will continue to grow more rapidly than the economy. Uh, and then as a result, these programs in combination are going to be posing sort of significant challenges as we go forward. And again, even much more challenging as we get out beyond this. So with that, that's our outlook. Please be a good user of it. Remember, it is not a forecast. It is a projection. And don't blame me if it's wrong. Thanks a lot, Don. Um, I'm going to uh, give about 10 minutes on uh, some of the numbers in the President's budget that came out last week. Um, I'll be followed by uh, Steve Slavinsky talking about some uh, possible reforms for the federal budget process, and then we can all take some, uh, some Q&A. Um, let me give a few points on the overall budget situation according to uh, the President's budget. Um, numbers in the President's budget show that total outlays have risen exactly 45% in the last five years, 2001 to 2006. Um, an interesting factoid is that if you, take fed if you take interest out of outlays, federal spending has risen exactly 50% um, in the last five years, which is, which is uh, rather startling. Looking ahead, um, this year the deficit of over $400 billion, uh, most analysts think, will rise to six or $700 billion in 10 years if the Bush tax cuts are extended, if taxpayers continue to get relief from the alternative minimum tax, and it's business as usual on the spending side of the budget. To me, that creates uh, both a short-term and long-term challenge. The short-term challenge is how do we cut spending and reduce the deficit in the short term so that the next president who comes into office in 2009 doesn't have a big excuse to raise taxes. Um, the long-run challenge is how to cut entitlement spending and eliminate whole federal programs so that the federal government um, doesn't grow to European-sized levels in coming decades as entitlement programs expand. Let me uh, first uh, mention a few things on discretionary spending in the President's budget. The good news is that the, the administration um, does plan to shrink domestic discretionary spending over the next five years. They include $15 billion of discretionary spending cuts for 2007, and the White House released a, uh, a big fat document um, last week on, uh, on where these $15 billion in cuts are, and I give them kudos for taking um, spending cuts very seriously and giving detailed um, reasons why these programs should be cut. The way I see these $15 billion in cuts is sort of a microcosm of much broader problems in the federal budget. Most of the 150 or so programs that the, uh, the Bush White House wants to cut are um, either um, properly state activities, properly local government activities, or properly activities that should be left to the private sector. And I'll, I'll give you uh, three uh, quick um, examples of uh, cuts in the, in the uh, White House's uh, document uh, to, to illustrate those points. Um, one program that I'd never heard of uh, that they want to zero out is called Real Choice Systems Change Grants. These are apparently a uh, grant for long-term care given to state governments. Uh, it was enacted in 2001. 
It's a tiny bit of federal spending, $25 million a year. But if you start searching on the Internet um, um, for information on this program, you'll find that this tiny $25 million program has a 77-page um, set of rules and regulations. Um, the federal bureaucracy produces an 89-page glossy annual report on the small grant program and federal administrators produce a 467-page annual compendium of all the activities in this tiny little $25 million grant program. Um, I've argued that the, the whole structure of federal granting um, is extremely wasteful and bureaucratic, and I think the, uh, the White House document um, released last week gives lots of examples of that. The uh, Washington Post had an interesting story this morning on the federal government's grants webpage, grants.gov, um, and uh, the Post story had a startling statistic that um, the federal government is spending $22 billion, billion with a B, um, just to set up and expand the grants.gov website. $22 billion just for a website. It's a, a remarkable um, amount of money. Another program that the White House proposed cutting, uh, another tiny program that I'd never heard of, um, there's apparently a federal phys ed program um, for grants to local uh, school districts. Um, this is a $73 million program, um, and I found searching on the web that even this tiny federal program has its own lobbyists. In this case, the lobbyists for the phys ed program um, uh, is the American Heart Association, and here's what they said in a recent press release. Um, through its advocacy efforts in Washington, D.C., and with the help of grassroots advocates, the American Heart Association played a significant role in helping to get the PEP bill passed than to secure the funds that made the grants possible, unquote. So even a tiny uh, phys ed program has its own federal lobbyists, and it shows how uh, difficult cutting spending is. A final example of, uh, of uh, cuts that the White House proposed um, um, was an example of something that ought to be left to the private sector. There is apparently something called the Technology Development Venture Capital Fund that uh, is in the federal budget. Um, it's got a, uh, the, the budget is only a few million dollars every year. It was passed in the, uh, or included in the 1996 telecom reform bill. Um, the White House uh, noted that uh, this tiny program has, has invested $22 million in uh, um, startup companies over the last few years, and that um, administrative salaries over that period consumed $11 million. So half of the amount that has been invested by this uh, government technology fund has been consumed by administrative salaries. Um, in my view, again, th th these uh, problems we see with these uh, tiny programs that the White House wants to cut are representative of much broader problems with the federal budget. So the bad news on discretionary spending is that the, the White House only cuts $15 billion. I think they should have multiplied that number by at least 10. Um, a lot of the uh, proposed um, cuts are not actually real cuts. A lot of the funding is actually recirculated into other programs, and one tiny example of that the uh, White House proposes cutting a uh, grant program f um, um, for, uh, for households to uh, weatherize um, their homes by putting in more insulation and weather stripping and that sort of thing. So they would eliminate this weatherization program. But they say, well, you know, we're cutting this program, but the LIHEAP program that, that uh, gives money to uh, low-income folks to weatherize their homes, that's being boosted greatly. So you've you got to be uh, careful when you're talking about cuts. Um, with uh, with uh, the the, uh, the federal budget this year, many programs are, are um, take slight trims, but ought to be zeroed out. Uh, one example is the White House would trim the funding for um, a bit of Alaska pork spending called the uh, Denali Commission, which is a $53 million program that was uh, enacted in 1999. Um, it essentially funds local infrastructure around the state of Alaska. Uh, purely um, what should be a, a state and local uh, function, and I don't know whether it was Ted Stevens or Don Young, Don Young that stuck that into the federal budget, but, you know, if you, you think about it, I mean, every state could have such a sort of a, a, a commission. Oregon could have their own commission. We already, we've already got an Appalachian Regional Commission, Maine. You know, all 50 states could, uh, you know, if they had powerful congressmen, enact these sort of commissions to get the federal government to fund their local infrastructure. Um, a crazy, a crazy uh, 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 way to spend federal money, it seems to me. So grants, uh, federal grants to state and local governments are one-fifth of the federal budget. I think a lot, of cut, a lot more cutting should be done in that area. Um, on entitlements, the, uh, the Bush um, administration um, uh, has proposed a $36 billion cut to the Medicare program. Sounds like a big number. Uh, it is, uh, unfortunately, just 1.4% of Medicare, total Medicare spending over the next five years. 
And uh, uh, figures in, uh, in uh, Don uh, Marin's new CBO outlook show that uh, just spending on the Bush prescription drug bill over the next five years will be $355 billion. So um, Bush um, added $355 billion of unfunded spending over the next five years, and now he just wants to take away about a tenth of that uh, with, this, with this cut. Uh, the administration has proposed uh, a, setting up a new commission to look at the overall entitlement spending problems. Personally, I'm against that. Um, seems to me that's going to be uh, simply an excuse for a big tax hike. Uh, seems to me we know what to do with entitlements. We need to cut them. Um, and, you know, I favor some just real simple, straightforward cuts to the entitlements with Social Security, um, switching from wage indexing of initial benefits to price indexing, straightforward, obvious way to slowly phase in substantial cuts over the next few decades. Medicare seems to me that we need to uh, increase deductibles. The Bush administration proposed increasing premiums somewhat. I'd increase premiums a lot more. Medicaid, it seems to me the obvious solution is to convert Medicaid to a block, block grant program like we did with welfare in 1996. If you look at welfare spending over the last few years, it's been flat and stable um, and, and hasn't been an increasing burden on taxpayers like Medicaid has. Um, you can get enormous federal taxpayer savings by block granting Medicaid. If you block granted it and grew it just at inflation over the next five years, you'd be saving $65 billion a year annually from that one program by 2011. Um, briefly on taxes, the budget called for permanent extension of President Bush's uh, tax cuts, his income tax rate cuts, the cuts to capital gains and dividends. Um, uh, that's, that's good news. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, the Bush State of the Union message and uh, his budget um, has not included a uh, proposal for major tax reform. Um, I think that was, uh, uh, um, it was rather uh, surprising and, uh, frankly, insulting, it seems to me, for the White House to, uh, they had a, an excellent commission um, that spent 10 months last year headed by former Senators Connie Mack and uh, John Bro, um, looking at major tax reform. They came out with an excellent report in November. It seems to me the administration um, ought to have taken that report and run with it and proposed major tax reforms this year. So that was a disappointment. Um, and a final point on taxes is that the, uh, the White House, uh, one of the new big themes this year is, uh, is competitiveness. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the competitiveness um, program or, or theme involves uh, increased spending on various things like science education, um, and not enough is being done on the tax side on competitiveness. Um, there is a flat tax revolution going on in Eastern Europe. Corporate tax rates are falling in many of our trading partners around the world, and it seems to me we need to do a lot more on the tax side of our international competitiveness. Um, so the Bush, um, Bush's, you know, historically, Bush's tax cuts have been very impressive. He's, he's passed or signed into law four major uh, tax cuts in, in, in his first four years. Um, but it seems to me, looking ahead with the gigantic spending and deficits we've got, that Bush's um, tax cut legacy may um, go up in smoke in the future if they don't get deficits under control. We may, you know, have Hillary Clinton coming into office in 2009 and, like her husband, may use the, the gigantic deficits that Bush has, uh, has left her to... Uh, to increase taxes, and, and all of Bush's domestic legacy will be will be wiped out. So, looking ahead, let me uh, let me give you both some optimistic and pessimistic views, and, and I really don't know which side of uh, this I'm on. I see it seems to me there's there's reasons to be both optimistic and pessimistic. Optimistically, the White House um, is right to say that uh, non-defense discretionary budget authority. Um, Spending, um, the growth rate has fallen in recent years. That's true. Budget authority for domestic discretionary has been pretty flat in recent years. The White House proposes to shrink um, domestic discretionary spending in the years ahead. Pessimistically, overall outlays continue to rise. Entitlement spending, of course, growing rapidly. Um, um, the supplemental spending by Congress is rising every year. Defense spending is rising. All that sucks resources out of the private economy. Um, and isn't good for uh, U.S. economic growth, it seems to me. Optimistically, um, Bush has proposed some cuts this year. We'll see how hard he, uh, he fights for them, and Congress did recently pass a small reconciliation spending cut bill. That's all of the good. Bad news is the White House doesn't propose any actual terminations of major programs this year, so all those programs are, will be, even if he slows the growth um, in them, they'll be waiting there to grow in future years. One of the big mistakes 
um, or missed opportunities by the Republican Congress in the mid-90s is that a lot of programs were trimmed and the growth was slowed for a number of years, but then um, because the programs continued to exist in the late 90s, they started um, growing rapidly again and have exploded uh, in recent years. Pessimistically, the White House seems to have given up on defense spending cuts. Um, the Washington Post editorial this morning uh, made a good point that, you know, Don Rumsfeld came into office as kind of a reformer on, uh, on Pentagon spending. He knew that there was a lot of waste there. The, the, the Bush White House did try to um, cut some unneeded weapon systems in prior years. They seem to have completely given up on that this year. Pessimistically, um, it seems to me that the House did not vote for the uh, true spending reformer in its majority leader elections uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, on the Senate side, um, the Senate Majority Leader, um, I don't know how much of a real fiscal conservative he is, but, you know, he's, he's probably going to be running for president. And it seems to me like in, back in 1996, when Bob Dole presided over the Senate um, and was also running for president, he really wasn't interested in uh, rabble-rousing and passing some of the spending cuts that the House proposed um, at the time. So unfortunately, I think Senator Frist will be a bit of a liability on, uh, on spending reform in the next few years. Um, so the most, you know, pessimistic outlook is that uh, Don didn't bring his long-term um, budget charts uh, this time around, but the, uh, the, uh, the, the GAO has produced an interesting chart that shows federal spending rising to about 45% of GDP by the year 2040. If it's business as usual in Washington, um, we, we'll have an enormous federal government um, without, without any major reforms. Um, optimistically, it seems to me, um, the liberals, if they, if they do want to push federal spending that high in future decades, it, it will be tough sledding for them. Um, I think with gigantic deficits, there's going to be increasing talk of a value-added tax in this country to fund entitlement. Um, but, you know, I don't think the American public um, is ready for that, thankfully. I think the public will rebel if, if uh, Congress decides to add a major new tax to its uh, tax armada. Um, another uh, choice um, to possibly fund all that future spending um, are increased payroll taxes. Um, the uh, payroll taxes fund entitlements now, so it seems like a logical choice um, for liberals to push to increase payroll taxes. Of course, uh, liberals don't like increased payroll taxes because they, uh, they hit labor really hard and tend to be uh, slanted towards the, the bottom end of the income spectrum. Well, the final choice um, for, for tax hikes, um, if, uh, if, if that's what's uh, pushed for in Washington, are income taxes. But it seems to me, with our increasingly integrated, globalized economy, it's going to be extremely difficult for anyone to raise income taxes or at least to um, raise any extra revenue from income taxes in the decades ahead. Um, the U.S. corporate income tax will not be raised. It's simply impossible to get any more money out of the corporate income tax um, in, in the decades ahead if uh, Congress tries to do that. On individual income taxes, again, I think, you know, ultimately the, the public will rebel if, if uh, substantial new uh, taxes are proposed on that front. So uh, to end on an optimistic note, um, I think that there, in decades ahead, maybe not for a number of years, there will be some pretty radical um, cuts to the spending side of the budget. Um, and even the uh, centrist liberal urban institute um, has recognized that radical reform is needed. The uh, Urban Institute came out with an interesting little uh, a piece uh, a, a few months ago talking about the federal budget. They start um, the piece. It's clearer by the day that fundamental radical reform is needed to restore fiscal responsibility to the federal budget. And I agree. And, and, and my view um, on what that radical reform should be may be a bit, a bit different from the Urban Institute, but it does seem uh, when push comes to shove, um, the American public will want the uh, Bush tax cuts extended. They, they won't want to be hit by this, the uh, gigantic AMT liability in the decades ahead. And I think that they will reject new taxes for entitlements in coming years. And that only leaves then one option to deal with the gigantic deficits ahead, and that's to cut spending. Um, so I'm going to stop there and pass the podium over to Steve Slavinsky, who's uh, Cato's budget director. Steve's going to talk about some of the possible um, reform approaches that Congress can take to uh, restrain spending. Thanks. I also want to thank you all for coming. We do appreciate uh, your attention. Uh, there's a general understanding in Washington, D.C. today that the budget process is broken. The budget, of course, is a process. It's a series of rules, and the budget gets written in a certain way because of these rules. Uh, I'm of the opposite opinion. I don't necessarily think the budget process is broken for the reasons people think it's broken. It actually seems to work all too well. That's the reason we have deficits. After all, government has expanded 33 percent over the past uh, at least four or five years. Uh, the problem isn't that the budget process is broken. is that it needs to be reformed in a way that actually helps us get spending under control. And 
as a result helps us get the deficit under control as well. If you look at the history of the Budget Enforcement Act from 1974, you find that uh, it was essentially built into the cards a way to try to take away from the executive branch its ability to actually create a check on increased spending. And so if you look at uh, the reform movement since then, uh, specifically things like Graham Rudman, for instance, uh, or even uh, some attempts to try to reform the budget process since then, you find they're generally geared to trying to reinstate this check and these balances on the budget process uh, and create more impediments to increased spending, not take down those impediments the way the Budget Enforcement Act, I think, envisioned over the long term. And so the White House actually has proposed a series. Uh, some of them are good and some of them don't make any sense and some of them just won't do anything, I think, to make things better uh, in their budget, a series of reforms uh, to the budget process. And I'm going to go through them and just kind of give a little bit of commentary on each of them and then we'll proceed to the Q&A. Uh, but I think the general presumption should be uh, if you're going to propose a budget rule, it should be for the purpose of creating boundaries on the budget process, not necessarily to make it more efficient. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and run through the uh, gamut of proposals that the Bush White House put forward uh, in their budgets actually contained in that document, the major savings and reforms in the President's 2007 budget that uh, Chris uh, held up during his remarks. First series of proposals are from uh, the concept that uh, we need to control mandatory spending. And in fact, the very first one looks at the PAYGO rules. Uh, obviously, for those of you who follow the budget process, you realize the PAYGO rules are put into place for the purpose of trying to offset any increases in spending uh, for the purposes of getting the deficit under control, make it, in a sense, revenue neutral or spending neutral or whatever term you want to use. A lot of the discussion has been about whether we should include tax cuts in those calculations as well, whether we should say once we propose a tax cut, we should also offset that with spending elsewhere. I think part of the problem with that debate, kind of putting it in those terms, is that it really ignores the enforcement mechanism uh, of the pay-go rules. As of right now, there's really not much to speak of. It's written in law that there will be a sequester of any money that goes above and beyond the revenue-neutral uh, pay-go uh, provision. The problem is that the list of actual programs from which money can be sequestered is very small, and actually sequesters rarely happen, even though it's pretty obvious that budgets uh, are growing far in excess of what is sustainable. So I think the enforcement mechanism needs to be beefed up, uh, even if we just use current pay-go. Uh, so the proposal should be to beef up the, uh, the provisions that allow that to be enforced and not necessarily worrying about it, a brand-new version of it. Second would be the long-term unfunded obligations. Uh, the question here, of course, is not that mandatory spending uh, can or can't be controlled in the short term. I think it can be, and there needs to be provisions to do that. The long-term unfunded obligations, that's where the big problem is. We're looking at, according to the Social Security and Medicare trustees report, somewhere over the infinite time horizon, or in perpetuity, as they say, close to an $80 trillion unfunded liability. That's basically benefits promised above and beyond our ability to pay for them. What the White House proposes is to try to scale back these long-term unfunded liabilities is to create a point of order to allow congressmen to, if, there, if there's a piece of legislation on the floor, that will increase the unfunded liabilities of these entitlement programs, lodge a point of order to, in a sense, throw a wrench in the works, try to uh, open it up to debate, in a sense, keep it from being exempted from sorts of caps and rules for debate. It's incidentally interesting that the uh, Bush Medicare drug benefit would have been hindered by just such a, a reform. Uh, in fact, it, uh, uh, the White House and most specifically the Treasury Department under Paul O'Neill actually commissioned a study uh, from uh, two economists, one of which Jagadish Gokhale is now a colleague of mine at the Cato Institute, looking at the long-term what they call infinite liabilities of Medicare and Social Security. Uh, incidentally, that uh, barometer, that uh, calculation was actually nixed from the budget. I think it was either 2001 or 2002. And so the White House was pretty obviously worried about the long-term implications of what the Medicare drug benefit would do, but they were worried not because it was going to cost so much, but I think because it was, they were worried that the news was going to get out, it was going to cost a lot more than they were claiming. But I think it would be important to have a metric within the budget that simply says if we're going to increase or if this is going to project an uh, increase in unfunded liabilities, there should be some kind of way a congressman or a senator is able to lodge a point of order against this legislation to try to gum up the works and, in a sense, make the budget process less efficient because, again, if it were more efficient, this type of stuff would, would squeeze through and make the problem worse. On the discretionary side, they propose discretionary caps. Now, as I've said, we do have discretionary caps in the current Budget Enforcement Act, but again, they're rarely enforced. Uh, the problem is you have a House Rules Committee, at least, who is able to exempt 
individual budget bills from the budget caps. The goal would be to, of course, create these enforcement mechanisms to allow Congress to stay, and force them to stay within these caps. There's another question, uh, at least another provision in the uh, Bush uh, proposal to, in a sense, just create these discretionary caps. Uh, they're simply saying we're going to try to keep these caps in place. Uh, but they don't really provide any sort of enforcement mechanism above and beyond uh, saying that any legislation that exceeds the discretionary caps would trigger a sequester of non-exempt discretionary programs. Again, we get into an issue of what do you call a sequester, and more specifically, to what do they apply? The question is, do these non-exempt discretionary programs, uh, what do they include? They probably include defense a lot of the time, but frankly, I don't think defense should be off the table. They probably also include some transportation and education programs that, again, probably shouldn't be off the table. So how you define what is exempt and what is not exempt is very critical in this sort of provision. There's also the suggestion that uh, it just leaves agnostic, I guess, the question as to where the caps are set that, of course, would be set by budget resolution by the House and the Senate. But again, there's nothing inherent to the rule that suggests that Congress can't, by a simple majority vote, just go ahead and raise those caps and avoid a sequester altogether, even in the, the construct that uh, the, the White House has put forward. I think there needs to be a stronger provision to force Congress, or more specifically, to disallow them from raising the caps so easily. I think we should go to a two-thirds majority as opposed to a three-fifths majority, which is uh, currently uh, what uh, maintains the strength of the discretionary caps, strength that I would argue uh, isn't uh, often there. The advance appropriations provisions is uh, the fourth idea that uh, Bush puts forward uh, to limit discretionary spending. The goal, of course, would be to uh, keep Congress from pushing more and more spending into the out years, uh, thereby making, trying to play games with the fiscal years and gaming the system. They're going to cap, according to the Bush White House, they're going to try to cap uh, advance appropriations at $23.7 billion. Again, not a bad idea, but again, it all comes down to enforcement, how you define these things. $23.7 billion, eh, it's not a lot of money in a $2.7 trillion budget, but it's certainly worth doing. On the side of emergency spending, we all know emergency spending is out of control, and it's actually one of the ways that Congress is able to evade the spending caps every year. Uh, the White House has put into, into place a... Uh, uh, proposal in their budget, which is actually, you could frankly be copied and pasted from previous budgets, and honestly, copied and pasted from previous budget resolutions as well, which I could give you some indication of how well it's worked thus far. The question is, should we uh, strengthen the definition of what really is an emergency expenditure? What the White House has suggested is any expenditure, in order for it to be uh, to, to keep it from being uh, other than emergency, more specifically to say it's going to be an emergency spending if and only if it's a necessary expense, it's sudden, urgent, unforeseen, and not permanent. All of these criteria need to apply for something to be designated an emergency expense. Uh, this sort of language was actually in the uh, budget resolution of last year, and it hasn't really, I don't, in fact, it's been in previous versions of budget resolutions as well, similar language. I'm not so convinced it's actually helped very much because, again, it's a matter of enforcement. House Rules Committee is able to put a rule onto various bills that effectively make this sort of thing neutral or, more specifically, take the teeth out of such a provision. Uh, and, again, I think it's important uh, for these sorts of enforcement mechanisms to be in place. Uh, the president does propose having some kind of uh, process whereby the president and the House and Senate agree that every provision in a bill that has an emergency distinction is indeed meeting those criteria. Again, I hope that kind of thing would help, but again, it hasn't really done much to help situation uh, up to this point. And then just quickly, the baseline provisions. Again, the assumption is that uh, every year we're going to use the previous year's budget as the baseline and then just tack on a certain percentage increase. The goal would be to uh, exclude, according to the White House, from this baseline calculation, emergency expenditures, basically, so these things aren't baked into the cake. Uh, things like Katrina wouldn't be baked into the cake or into the CBO baselines or, or things of that sort. Uh, but again, I think a better plan would be to probably get rid of the whole concept of baseline budgeting altogether. In fact, uh, the Bush White House at some time pl uh, flirted with the idea of uh, a zero-based budgeting concept where every agency, at least on the discretionary side, starts with a zero budget every year, not not the previous year's budget. That would be a much more aggressive and interesting way of doing this than simply just tweaking with the current uh, baseline structure. You heard in the State of the Union that the president wants to support a line-item veto. Again, this is something that uh, happens quite often. In fact, every president has asked for this sort of power, and I think it's important because it does reverse some of the uh, rules that were put into place under the Budget Enforcement Act back in the 70s. It would restore more power of the president to veto sorts of uh, pork projects and things of that sort. 
Bush has not vetoed a single bill yet, so I'm not so sure he would use a line item veto either, but I'm willing to give them benefit of the doubt, and in some ways maybe Congress should play a little game of chicken and see if he blinks on this one. Uh, the joint budget resolution is another idea. The idea would be to, in a sense, create uh, a budget resolution that has the force of law, can't be overturned by a simple majority, uh, or more specifically, uh, has to be, in order for it to be altered, it has to be another piece of legislation, change a law just the way it would change any other law. All right now, budget resolutions are, and frankly, just mere suggestions. I think a joint res budget resolution would be good uh, to try to maintaining that discipline. And then the last three ideas uh, are... In a, in a sense, w somewhat wishy-washy. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, two, two of the ideas are wishy-washy. One of them could be potentially worthwhile. The idea of a biennial budgeting and appropriation cycle. Instead of budgeting every year, we're going to budget every two years. The goal would be to try to keep the appropriations process in the odd-numbered years so you're not doing this during a, an election year. I think that might be okay. It, that could potentially be a good thing. However, I'm not so sure it's really going to get you anywhere, and I don't think it fits the qualifications of trying to restrain the amount of, of spending Congress does. In fact, we look at the states. There's about 13 states that have biennial budget processes. And uh, actually, the Cato Journal published an article a few years ago looking at the actual outcomes of sorts of provisions within constitutions at the state level to see if they actually hinder or help spending discipline. Uh, what uh, the authors of this paper found was that in those 13 states, and this is over a period of about 40-year time series data, find that the biennial budget provisions really had no effect. In fact, if anything, the only statistically, uh, what they call statistically robust elements that they found was that it actually increases spending a little bit, not not uh, not decline. So uh, this is also a dis dis uh, excuse me a kind of misleading too, in the sense that a lot of these states that have, or at least Texas in particular, that have biennial budget processes have only part-time legislatures. They're only in office once. I'm sorry, they only have a session once every two years. Actually, that would not be a bad thing if you wanted to bring that to Congress, but I don't think that's what the White House has in mind in terms of biennial budgeting. Tenth, government shutdown prevention. The goal is, of course, to keep the government from shutting down if Congress doesn't pass a budget by October 1. Uh, I think this is actually needless. Uh, government seems to spend money fine even in a continuing resolution kind of scenario. And if anything, all it really does is it takes away another deadline for Congress. I think Congress needs more deadlines, not fewer. In fact, I actually prefer the idea that Senator George Allen put forward just last week in a speech he gave uh, looking at uh, why Congress can't get spending under control and why they can't seem to get the budget done on time. Senator Allen suggested, why don't we just go ahead and withhold congressional paychecks for members uh, if uh, budgets aren't finished by October 1st. That seems to be like a much more uh, potent uh, restriction on, uh, on spending and more specifically an in incentive for congressmen to actually get the budget done on time. And finally, the idea of a results and sunset commission. Uh, the, again, the White House has sort of pasted this from previous versions of the budget. I think it's a good idea, but I think it needs to go further. It shouldn't just be looking at results and more specifically whether government programs are running efficiently the way the White House uh, says they want to try to create this system. I think it needs to be sort of a bureaucracy closure commission. We need to model it after the BRAC commission that's been so good at actually getting uh, spending under control on the defense side. I think we should have uh, a group of folks who, uh, who are appointed by Congress and the White House. Uh, they, would not be not, they would not be elected officials. Uh, they could be former elected officials, but they can't currently be incumbents. And putting them uh, in a room and basically saying in 30 days you come out with a study that lists all of these programs that uh, shouldn't be in the federal budget, and then you present it to Congress, and Congress needs to agree within the 30 to 60-day period to vote on an unamendable bill on an up or down vote within a certain time period uh, whether these programs should uh, exist beyond this point. Uh, that sort of thing would be a much better uh, way of getting control of spending than I think a results commission, which frankly only makes uh, government programs more efficient. And anything that makes government more efficient at spending money, I think, is probably not necessarily a good idea. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, Steve. We've got a few minutes for uh, Q&A for any of the uh, panelists today. Down here. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
Actually, what Hinterling's bill, uh, the Family Budget Protection Act, is what I think you're referring to, or it's, I think it might be called something different now. But a lot of these ideas that I talked about, uh, and actually the White House talks about, are in that bill. Uh, Hinterling's bill goes further, and I think it's a better version uh, than what the White House proposed. There are a few things in there that I think is that are kind of wishy-washy, like the government shutdown protection, things of that sort. But uh, Hinterling's bill does go further, I think, in terms of keeping uh, a stronger cap on discretionary spending. Uh, he's actually, I think he's proposing entitlement spending caps. I could be wrong about that, but he's going further than the White House uh, in terms of uh, trying to restrain entitlement spending. Uh, all what the White House has really just done is just created, I think as Chris mentioned, sort of an entitlement reform commission to try to come up with a series of ideas. But the problem isn't that we don't have enough ideas. We just don't have enough political courage to actually implement the ideas we do have. There's plenty of great ideas to get this stuff under control. I think what the entitlement commission idea is simply just – like pressing the snooze button on the entitlements crisis alarm clock, frankly. I mean, I think we need to be looking for, as I said, stronger rules, and I think the Hensherling bill uh, has a stronger set of rules than, than the White House uh, overall. Down here. I, you know, I, I looked at those the numbers recently in great detail. On you know, the, the White House um, focuses on the budget authority numbers, um, and you know those those do show sharp, uh, very sharp spending increase, uh, 2000 to 2001, the year before Bush came into office. I think non-discretionary defense BA went up something like 17 percent, and it is true that there's been a downward slope um, ever since. Um, but, you know, again, I mean, the, um, if you look at outlays, it doesn't look so good for the, the White House in terms of spending restraint. Um, and it, it, it seems to me that, you know, even if, even if the, the White House, if the White House came, you know, if the Bush administration came into office and there had been, been this big, you know, buildup of non-discretionary um, budget authority, that strikes me that should have given them an even stronger footing to start cutting early on in their administration rather than, you know, now waiting till uh, the second term to start um, cutting down a bit. Um, you know, there's all, you know, I've made lots of criticisms of the, of the administration. I mean, the, the fact that they, you know, they, they, they haven't tried to offset any of their uh, big emergency spending increases. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think that, I mean, the, the current, their current five-year projections are, there's a lot of mythology built in there. Um, they should have been had a lot more honest and transparent uh, budget and uh, and projections. I think their promise to cut the deficit in half in five years is really it's baloney um, unless they're a lot tighter with spending. They, for example, only include a one-year extension to AMT relief, and it's pretty obvious that that Congress and the White House a year from now are going to push for another one-year extension. For AMT, so I think they they should have had, and you know they've got they've got a, a pretty sharp decline in non-defense discretionary budget authority over the next five years, but they don't really give a plan to tell us how they're going to do it. I mean the details aren't there. If you ha if you want to to actually get to that sharp decline um, in non-defense discretionary, which I support, it seems to me you've got to be a lot more proactive in going after major programs, um, else it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. I have a few things to add unless Don wants to go ahead and – okay. Uh, just on that point, uh, what the White House likes to do is they, they have this new term they've created, which don't, doesn't appear in the CBO data or even in the OMB data, what they call non-security discretionary spending. And it's sort of a, a question of redefinition. They're keeping, for the most part, out of that discretionary calculation – defense spending, pretty much the, almost the entire DOD military budget. Uh, I'm not convinced that's actually a, a good way of doing it uh, because not every dollar spent on the military goes directly to war on terrorism funding. Uh, in fact, a very large portion of it doesn't. Uh, it seems to me one or two cents uh, – I'm sorry, uh, only about uh, – excuse me, only about 15, 20 cents on every dollar probably actually go to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan current expenses. In fact, there's a – a statistic in the CBO, the new CBO document that looks at the appropriations bills, specifically the emergency supplementals and all the appropriations bills, uh, and looks at the line items and figures out uh, of these which are specifically geared toward war on terrorism, Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, it's only about $325 billion, I think, or kind of in that, in that range. And that's been over the past four or five years. We spent close to a trillion on defense uh, over the past four or five years. So again, $325 billion versus $1 trillion. Again, there's obviously a lot more going on the defense budget, just Iraq and Afghanistan, and so netting it out and saying, oh, look, we're keeping non-defense discretionary under control really sort of only tells you less than half the picture. 
down the front. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I guess I agree with Senator Coburn and McCain on this. I mean, I think earmarks have been, uh, um, you know, a, a, they're a corrupting influence on the overall budget process, it seems to me. It is really stunning looking at the data, seeing how much earmarks have exploded over the last uh, uh, decade. Um, you know, I don't know all the reasons for that. I guess there's an argument that it's, you know, it helps, earmarks help lubricate the passage of legislation in a tight Congress. Um, but, you know, I, I'm in favor of changing the rules by various ways um, to eliminate earmarks completely. Um, uh, you know, it seems to me that that would, from my sort of Cato perspective, that would, it, um, it, it, it would get the, the earmark question um, off the table and so people can focus on the general broader problem of, you know, the overall um, big spending increases. You know, earmarks, as you sort of hinted, are, you know, a small part of the federal budget, $50 billion or something a year. But I do think that there's a sort of a corrupting influence on the overall process. Well, I, you know, I'm strongly against any tax increases. I think even with Bush, the Bush tax cuts extended, um, AMT relief made permanent or the AMT repealed, um, you know, federal revenues will slowly float back up to about 18 percent of GDP. They're, you know, 40 or 50 year historic uh, norm. Um, I, I, it seems to me, you know, it, 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 there should, that, that should be considered sort of the norm. In, uh, in, uh, in revenues going ahead, and uh, if we've got all these, you know, Congress has got to be forced to make trade-offs, it seems to me, and I, I think, you know, I'm in favor of cuts across the board, domestic discretionary defense, um, and, uh, and, and entitlements. You've got to tackle it all, it seems to me. The problems are gigantic. I mean, the pessimistic view is, you know, if you look at, you know, Don's, the last number of Don's forecast is 2016. Pessimistic view is that Congress really doesn't have to do anything until 2016. The deficit would rise to six or seven hundred billion dollars a year, but as a share of GDP, the deficit and debt would still be not out of control. Um, and we've seen now that, you know, deficits don't seem to have any impact on short-term interest rates or economic growth. So Congress, if it wants to be a do-nothing Congress, can, can kind of just keep kicking the can forward and forward and forward, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully they'll start cutting spending sooner. But, you know, we could, you know, if we were back here in 10 years, we, we could just be seeing the start of some serious spending cuts, I think. A last question? Yeah, I, I think farm subsidies won't last in the long term. I think I, I, you know, I think if we get to that point 10 years from now, the big crunch, I think farm subsidies will be one of the first programs that will get cut or eliminated. It's not impossible. Other countries have done it. Um, uh, I, I think some of those lobby groups will be, um, if it's a question of gigantic tax increases, which there, there will be, I think Congress will start doing cuts. And whether it's they do it, whether they try to get political cover by putting it in the form of a big commissioner or, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, farm subsidies will be, uh, will be cut uh, eventually. There's, I mean, one thing that, you know, optimistically on the farm subsidy front is that there, there is growing international pressure, you know, for not only U.S. and Europe and everyone else to cut farm subsidies. That's a good external outside pressure. Um, and I think, you know, external outside pressures um, will be helpful in other parts of the uh, the federal budget. It seems to me there's a lot of stuff that our federal government does, running a train system, running a postal system, that other advanced countries, industrial countries have said, hey, you know, we don't really need the government to do this. Um, you know, Germany has privatized their post office. Um, most European countries have privatized airport security. I think as we get more and more globalized, and other countries are going to have big budget crunch, crunches as their um, elderly pop, you know, so they get rising elderly populations. I think there's going to be a lot of really remarkable and substantial reforms in the decade ahead that I think the United States will learn from other countries and will start implementing some of the reforms. 
Yeah, also just to add to that, I, I am optimistic about on the agriculture side, uh, mostly because of the external pressures. In fact, uh, Chris also didn't mention that the sort of WTO rulings that are going to force Congress to do something on this. And so I think that's that's a good thing. And I think these external pressures are going to help contain those sorts of programs. And I'm also thinking about the macroeconomic conditions uh, that we're going to see coming up over the next couple of years as farm subsidies and agriculture programs come up for reauthorization. And thinking back to what happened in 1996, for instance, the last time we had a decent chance of getting things under control, and it did work temporarily at least, I think. But uh, 96, you had a different kind of macroeconomic environment. You had commodity prices going up, farm incomes going up, and so demand for these sorts of things were actually lower. And so there wasn't as much squawking when you put into into place sort of the downward uh, you know, sloping uh, phase-out provision. And I think we're, we're getting to that place macroeconomically as well. And so I think that sort of what you might call a perfect storm of macroeconomic conditions as well as external pressures like WTO rulings and the fact that all other, most other uh, countries are, are actually doing the sorts of things to liberalize their agriculture markets. I think that alone would probably uh, have more pressure on agriculture programs than anything we've seen since or before, rather. All right. Thanks a lot for coming.